Would you please pray with me again? Our Father, we thank you for your grace extended towards us. We thank you that although your glory is displayed so clearly in creation, we thank you that it's also been displayed to us in the written pages of your word and in your word incarnate, Jesus Christ. We pray this morning that your Holy Spirit would further reveal your glory to us and that you would change us and convict us by your word such that we might better display that glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week we began a new series called The Church Has Mail. We're going through the letters to the seven churches found in the book of Revelation, and these letters are recorded for us for our instruction. And they were letters we learned last week that were sent by Christ himself. Jesus opens in chapter 1 by reminding his readers that he is indeed the Lord of the church, that he is the one who is with the church, that he is among the church, that he speaks authoritatively to the church, that he, through encouragement and conviction, is purifying the church, and that he, as the living one, is the one who also offers eternal life to those in the church who hear his words and obey. And so this week, we come to read the first letter addressed to the church in Ephesus. Ephesus is an amazing congregation, and Ephesus perhaps has the richest theological history of any church that we've seen. It's the one about which we know the most as well. As the New Testament unfolds, we see the Ephesian church get born in Acts 19. We see it get instructed in the book of Ephesians challenged in 1st and 2nd Timothy and it receives rebuke through the letters of 1st, 2nd and 3rd John and now it's threatened by Christ himself in the book of Revelation. Now here's a few noteworthy mentions that we see throughout the New Testament about the church at Ephesus. Paul's ministry partners Priscilla and Aquila were the first ones to bring the gospel to Ephesians. They were taught by a Jew called Apollos, who is described in Acts as being eloquent and competent with the scriptures. Having heavily invested in their foundation through, through his letters, Paul then comes and joins the church himself for three years. Then Paul's spiritual son, Timothy, served as pastor of that church, and the, the letters of First and Second Timothy are addressed to him while he's in that role. One Cyphorus and Tychicus, also fellow laborers of Paul, they ministered at Ephesus too. And finally, the Apostle John spent the last decades of his life with the Ephesian church from which he wrote 1st, 2nd and 3rd John, which he calls himself the elder. Now, scholars believe that he was still leading the church at Ephesus when he was arrested and exiled to Patmos when he there writes the letter that we're looking at today, back to the letter to Ephesians in Revelation. So perhaps no church history has a legacy to rival the staff that have worked at this church. Who was your pastor, Timothy? Really? Where did he study under Paul? Really? Where did Paul learn um, Jesus? Okay, that's pretty legit. <laughs> so at first glance, the passages that we read 
regarding the Ephesian church, it sounds like the, ch- the kind of church that I want my family to attend. It sounds like a church that had solid doctrine, that they were serious about holiness, that they could spot false teaching, which means that they knew scripture. And these, these things formed for them a solid foundation so that when persecution came or suffering from the gospel, for the gospel was their, their lot, they were faithful to the Lord of the church and the work that he called them to. But they weren't perfect. And so Jesus writes a letter. So let's dive in. Jesus writes to them, starting in verse 2, he says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. So Jesus tells them that he knows their work and their toil and their patient endurance, and he says so twice in these two verses to re-emphasize the point. And when Jesus tells this church that he knows them, he knows their works, this isn't the word for acquired knowledge, as though somebody had written to Jesus, or they whispered in his ear and they told him about what Ephesus had been up to. This is the word of the omniscient Lord knowing every thought and word and deed that's happening in the church, penetratingly aware. This is what we call one of God's incommunicable attributes. It's one of the ways that God is not like us. This is omniscience where God knows everything about everything. He sees and he knows everything right down to what the electron microscope can see and he knows beyond what it can see, right down to the tiniest subatomic particle. He knows everything that the Hubble telescope can see and he knows everything beyond what it can see out to the furthest reaches of all that there is. He knows every thought, every word, every action, and he knows it all perfectly, effortlessly, because he learned none of it. And so this knowing makes Jesus the perfect judge because he holds all knowledge about everything and therefore every decision that he makes is pure and just and good. I think we should take some encouragement knowing that that's the kind of Lord who is Lord of our church. But I think there's also an appropriate amount of caution in that statement too. So what does Jesus know about Ephesus? Well, this is a church who knows what it means to be a church. They understand from this helpful little book, this letter that Paul wrote called The Letter to the Ephesians, that they are saved by grace. They know their identity in Christ, that they are the ones who are chosen before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless, set apart that they are Jesus' body, his hands and feet in the world, and that they are commissioned like Jesus' first disciples, to spread the gospel, to teach everything that Jesus had commanded. And they know that they have been saved into the body of Christ. That in a very real sense, salvation is not about individuals, but rather one body with many members. 
They now live and breathe and serve in the context of community. Indeed, if you were a first century Christian and you'd just been baptised by Paul and you kind of said, thanks for the baptism, Paul, now I'm just going to go and do my own thing as a Christian over there, Paul would have looked at you like you had two heads because the idea of being a Christian outside of being a committed, contributing participant in a local church body is completely removed from the idea of New Testament Christianity. So the Ephesians knew who they were and their corporate identity together gave them great strength and patience and endurance as they were being persecuted in a city which was strikingly not Christian. Ephesus itself was a great city, a city that thrived on exotic goods that came in. They were a harbour city, so boats came in with all kinds of you can imagine, fine trade goods from, from across the seas. They also had four major Roman roads which came in from the inland cities to, to um, come into Ephesus to access the harbour. But Ephesians was also home to one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the temple to the goddess Artemis. Now, Artemis's temple was attended by thousands of priests and servants and priestesses and all sorts of quite terrible ritual activities. And outside of the temple grounds in the larger city, the manufacture and provision of the various tools and dress and equipment required to participate in temple life was a, a huge source of financial income and stability for the city. So you can imagine that a group of Christian followers with a message of a monotheistic faith about a deity other than Artemis was not going to be too popular. In fact, it wouldn't be a stretch to say that most of the city was holistically hostile towards a consistent Christian presence chipping away at their pagan lifestyles. In Acts 19, we, we read a story which I'll, I'll summarise where a, a silversmith causes passions to escalate in the city to a near riot state where he he um, speaks to a crowd of these craftsmen and reminds them that if they continue to allow Paul and the growing Christian church to continue unchecked, then their entire industry is not only at risk of losing so much of its wealth, but actually falling into disrepute. So it would be fair to say that the Ephesian Christians knew what it was to be persecuted and shunned. But in the face of this, over all the decades since Paul had first laid the foundation in his letters, they continued to stand firm, to endure patiently with hope and eyes that were fixed firmly on the one who was and who is and who is to come. Jesus' commendation of their faithful endurance, their faithfully doing the work and the toil of the church, is the kind of praise that we too should seek to receive, isn't it? Secondly, also in these verses, Jesus writes through John, I know how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and have found them to be false. So an attribute that Jesus praised in the Ephesian believers was that they had never forgotten the words that Paul spoke to them again through Ephesians. Uh, 
I beg your pardon, actually, where he writes this in Acts. This is where Paul speaks to the Ephesian elders in the book of Acts. And he says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. It's good for us to remember that while this letter in Revelation is not written to us, it's been included in the pages of Scripture for us, for our instruction. And it was, in point of fact, intended to be read by all of the churches on this route. I think that this is perhaps one of the most pertinent warnings for the church throughout history. One of, one of my greatest concerns today is our increasing inability to determine who in fact is a Christian and who isn't. The threat of false teachers is not isolated to first century Ephesus and the level of discernment is still every bit as high as it was required to be back then and perhaps more so because of the unprecedented access that we now have to people all across the globe who would claim to be Christians. Indeed, the level of discernment that we need just to navigate our local Christian bookstores can be hard. Just like Ephesus, threats have come from inside as well as outside the church. So I greatly appreciate the way in which the Lord Jesus made it really clear to this church that a characteristic that he desires to see in his church is that every person would have the theological wherewithal to be able to determine a false teacher. Not because there's a status that comes with being the, well, actually, guy, but because... The ability to identify a false teacher is not actually the result. Rather, it's the fruit, the evidence of being so familiar with the true gospel that spotting a fake is easy. Kosti Hinn, the nephew of the famous word of faith preacher Benny Hinn, sums this up in, in his new book quite well. He says... The better you know the truth, the less you will fall for the lies. It's a well-stated warning and a worthy pursuit. Okay, so Jesus has set this high standard as the Lord of the church for knowing his word, for spotting false error and false teaching. But what has Jesus actually done to help the church, to bolster them against this threat to faithfully tend to sheep, but also to fend off the wolves. Well, Paul is glad you asked. And he writes about it in his letter, you guessed it, to the Ephesians. He writes, and he, that is Jesus, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of God, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, 
by craftiness in deceitful schemes, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. God gives his people gifts, not for themselves, and not primarily for evangelism, but first for the building up of others in the church. Building each other up happens by being actively immersed in the life-changing word of God and the faithful applications of its truth in our lives together. Sounds a lot like North Pine's vision for 2020, doesn't it? Faithful, together, bold. And the Ephesians did this well. So sure, Jesus was pleased that they had matured in sound doctrine to the point where they could spot a false teacher from 50 paces wearing a blindfold. But only because this was the, the, the evidence of years of faithful discipleship, evidence that they loved the word, they heeded its call to guard themselves against falsehood through diligently studying the truth. So the Ephesians had some good things going for them, things that we would do well to emulate. They patiently endured under all circumstances, being faithful to the Lord of the church. They had an intolerance of false teaching, but their congregation fell by missing the only point that matters. The church worked hard, they served hard, they studied hard, they evangelized hard, and they endured. But I have this against you, Jesus writes, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Their biblical fidelity protected them from succumbing to falsehood, and a high level of doctrinal discernment kept their people faithful, but... In all of these things, the church had fallen for routine. Their programs were practiced, their faith habitual, and their love had grown cold. You know, God could have chosen anything in all of creation to communicate to us his intended design for Christ's relationship with the church. It's amazing to me that he chose the one that he did. Think about it. He could, have, he could have chosen stories in the Bible that depicted mighty kings ruling over downtrodden subjects or inescapable masters with their fearful slaves. But instead, he chose to give us poetry and narrative, letters of instruction, communicating his design for the most intimate human relationship possible, that of a man and a woman in marriage and he used that unequaled love and closeness to show us his intention for Christ and the church so where do we find laid down this clear and beautiful theology for marriage oh it was in Paul's letter to the Ephesians and he wrote about it through Paul in such a way that those who are married and those who are not married would come away with a, a faithful, clear understanding of what God intended marriage to look like. He wrote, 
Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Perhaps you know what it's like being in love with someone or something. And at a basic level, the crossovers are pretty much the same, whether it's a person or let, let pick, choose a motorbike. When you first fall in love with motorbikes, you, you read about them, you watch shows about them, you, you long to have one. Once you have one, you spend time with it, you clean it, you take care of it, you pull it apart and you spend time with it so you can learn about how each little part of it works and how it all fits together, what makes it tick. How much more of your time and thoughts and affections do you joyfully give to a person that you love? But who also knows that when you're in a relationship, you can spot pretty quickly if the other person is just going through the motions. If they're just mentally ticking off the things in their head that they know that they're supposed to be doing with you, but there's no love. I can tell you that a relationship like that is one that's on the clock. And the Ephesian church had been on this rocky ground for a while. But there's also a beautiful economy of words because we remember that while John penned this letter, it was Jesus writing to the church. And so remembering that Jesus is the one writing, when Jesus says you have abandoned your first love, the Ephesians are meant to cast their mind back to Jesus when he sat with his disciples and he says, this is the greatest and the first commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul, and with all your mind. When he says love, it reminds the Ephesians, as it should remind us, that loving Jesus means full commitment. All of our faculties, our hearts, our heads, our hands and feet. The Ephesians continued in their serving, in taking the sacrament, in breaking bread together, in their biblically rigorous discipleship, But their love had grown cold, and love is the point. So here's a people serious about holiness, continuing to endure through trying circumstances and being found faithful to Christ. A people who can spot a false teacher with their eyes closed, and yet they still manage to lose sight of Christ. It's an indictment that Jesus uses the word abandoned. That's a strong word. Yet Christ says that they have completely departed from the one thing that makes all the other things mean anything. And without which, what are they? A noisy gong? A clanging cymbal? Jesus writes to the church and he tells them that this is what they're in danger of being, A church that rings briefly and is suddenly gone. It's exactly what Jesus says will happen to the church if they don't repent and refocus, regain the love that they had at first. I will remove your lampstand is what Jesus says. Effectively, you'll be shutting down and someone else will be looking to buy your building. Love is the point. 
allow me to share a personal story. When I was studying, I knew that I wanted to cultivate my ability to teach. I didn't know how, I didn't know what that looked like, but I wanted to learn so that I could better help others learn. Every semester I loaded myself up with church history and biblical interpretation, languages, none of those fluffy subjects like pastoral care and love. Let somebody else do those. I just want to teach. And then disaster hit me. And it hit me hard. And in the midst of my grief, it wasn't the people who could properly exegete Romans 9. It wasn't the people who could sit with me and tell me why that particular Greek subjective genitive meant this passage mean a particular thing. It was the ones who came and sat on my couch and cried with me and said nothing. And the love that they showed was more profound than any theologically accurate PhD dissertation that I could ever write. And so from that point, my subject selection every semester changed. Academic subject, pastoral care subject, history subject, spiritual guidance. You get the picture. Love is the point. It took a crisis in my life for Jesus to get my attention so that I could make the necessary course correction to be the kind of Christian that he wanted me to be. Because love is the point. Now, we aren't told, but I hope that the Ephesian church heeded these words. I hope they got the point. I hope that we do too. So what can we take away from this short letter to the church at Ephesus. First, we should be people who are serious about the word of God. Here at North Pine, we love to read the Bible, sing the Bible, pray the Bible, study the Bible. And we recognize that the Bible is living and active such that when we come to read it, it is actually reading us, correcting us, convicting us, cultivating Christ-likeness in us. But we also know that to be truly the people we're meant to be, we need to be spiritually alive because to love knowledge about God without loving God misses the point. It's a no-win and it's rebuked by no one less than Jesus himself in this letter. So the point of the Bible is to fall in love with Jesus, to enjoy a relationship with him as our greatest treasure. And if we read it all and we don't catch that, we've missed the point. Simply reading scripture isn't the point. Doing good deeds isn't the point. Pointing out false teachers, even for the right reasons, isn't the point. Behold, what manner of love the Father has given to us that we would be called children of God. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? So now faith, hope, and love remain. But the greatest of these is love. Love is the point. 
Jesus writes this letter because he loves the church and he longs for them to come back. He writes to them in verse 5, Remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. And as before, twice in two verses, repent, repent. To return to that which they did at first by remembering who they are, what they have been saved from, and the glorious promise of that which they are saved to. And finally, the promise. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Does this promise recall to your mind the Garden of Eden? Because it's meant to. The same tree and the offer of life that was taken away from Adam because of his disobedience is now offered again to those who hear the commands of God and obey. Because Christ, the true and better Adam who passed the test in the garden, died so that you could live. He was put to death on a tree so that you could eat of the tree, so that you could have life in eternal paradise in relationship with your creator. What shall we say then? May we hear his words today and let them be true of us. Please pray with me. Loving Father, we've only just begun in our time here today to plumb the bottomless depths of your glorious gospel. Thank you for encountering us as we've sat under your instruction today and thank you for revealing to us by your Holy Spirit more of your word and your will for our lives together through this letter. Thank you that the price for our redemption has been paid in full and we don't have anything to do to earn a right standing with you except to receive the gift of faith that you offer us to believe it Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and we will be counted among those who share life eternal with you. Help us to endure with patience, to remain faithful to your word, the truth, and in all things to love you with all that we have. In the name of Jesus Christ, the Lord of the church, we love you and we give you thanks. Amen.